Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, our Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Jara, and thanks for tuning in to our first episode of 2020. Yay! Yay! New year, bigger and badder attitude. <laughs> Only a, a few short years away from the Bell Riots. Oh, that's less fun. <laughs> yeah, you know what, though? People keep posting about that, and I'm like, we pointed that out four years ago when we did that episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ahead of the game. So today with me, as you've heard, we have Sue. Hi. And Grace. My New Year's resolution is to be louder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and before we get into our main topic, we have a bit of housekeeping to do first. To remind you, as usual, that our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 a month and get awesome rewards like thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries and bonus episodes about non-Star Trek things. Most recently, Sue and I talked about that other star franchise. Stargate. That other other one. Starquest? Sequest! The one, the one <laughs> with the wars. <laughs> Sequest had, had internal wars. <laughs> that counts, right? Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash women at warp. Uh, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. I got it. Babylon 5. <laughs> yes. That, yes. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So, today's topic, we are going to talk about the series premiere of Star Trek Voyager Caretaker. Because this year is the 25th anniversary of Star Trek Voyager, and Caretaker first aired on January 16th, so just a few days away from when this episode drops, 1995, after about almost two years of work on the series framework and the plot of the episode by Rick Berman, Jerry Taylor, and Michael Piller. So yeah, so we're going to get into that and talk about things like how we... Do we like the episode? Um, what what works? What doesn't? You know, some of the weird behind the scenes ideas they had. We'll talk about you know whether those might have worked well or not, and uh, how the episode holds up today, or how we might view it differently today, twenty five years later. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. So, does anyone want to give a high level? overview of the plot of this episode high level overview of high concept sci-fi that could be a little <laughs> tricky so the, the starship voyager is chasing a maquis ship through the badlands and somehow through magic both ships wind up in the delta quadrant where they find themselves in a weird country barn but that weird country barn is actually run by this guy the caretaker and it turns out when he showed up years and years and years ago he destroyed the atmosphere of the okampa planet so now it's his job to stay and take care of them, but he's dying. So he needed to find a replacement, or rather someone to mate with to create a replacement. That's creepy. That's why he was stealing ships from all over the world, or galaxy, rather. And uh, But none of it worked, so he dies. And then the Kazon are going after the Array so they can get water from the Okampa. And Janeway is like, not on my watch, bub, and she blows up the Array. And now everybody is stuck in the Delta Quadrant. The end. <laughs> what hijinks will they get up to next? <laughs> Can I just say one thing about the startup of this episode that I, I've seen yeah. this episode many times now, and it's a thing that I always forget, is that we get the introduction to the concepts of uh, the fight between the 
the Maquis and Starfleet, and we get that in the form of a Star Wars-style text crawl. I forget mm. about that all the time, too. And then it's just kind of like, oh, okay. Isn't there a similar text crawl in Deep Space Nine in Emissary? Because they have a thing about, like, Wolf 359 at the beginning? If they do, then I forgot that also. <laughs> yeah, but I also always forget it, and I've seen this episode so many times, and again, when I was rewatching it today, I was like, Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, it does save a lot of, like, dialogue backstory. It does, but I also hope that this was, like, them being like, Heh, nerds, you haven't had a Star Wars movie recently. Look at us, Star Trek, giving you fresh, sweet content. <laughs> this well hasn't dried up. <laughs> yep. But I guess, were there a large number of people who weren't watching next gen and ds9 who like turned in tuned in for the premiere of voyager i guess that's what they were the audience they were hoping to potentially tap there i think that they so from what i read um so voyager we know is the flagship show for the new upn network which is like saying atm machine united paramount network and they knew that they were going to have to port over those fans so they had considered, like, some other form of a split crew that would have, like, un you know, some other people that would join up with them that would be, like, Delta Quadrant people or something, but decided on the Maki because they knew that there would be a critical mass of people who had already seen TNG and DS9. But, you know, they I guess they had to have a little bit of exposition for people, like, who just weren't maybe, or more casual fans. People who are wanting to just occasionally tune in for an episodic sci-fi show. Or perhaps reviewers. Yeah. Yeah, those people that still call them the marquee. <laughs> the people who just, every time a new episode comes on, goes, now, now, is this the one with Captain Kirk? <laughs> oh, so <laughs> my dad. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got a dad or an uncle who does that at some point. Yeah, so... We, we get the Maki chase scene, and then we have our lovely opening credits with our beautiful opening music that I, th I think most of us are, are fans of that. Mm -hmm. And what's not to like? And then we go to Earth, where Janeway is busting Paris out of space prison. Except for it's on Earth. You say busting, but... We uh, we get to first see her making the most perfect dramatic pose entrance. The camera just pans over to her. And she's <laughs> got one of those, oh, I've been standing here the whole time poses. And I appreciate that so freaking much. <laughs> Apparently in an early iteration of the script, her and Paris go to a hot dog stand. Little less gravitas there. And they have a conversation about how her hot dog has ketchup and mustard, but he says he's a purist and only has mustard. You're lying. That's not real. <laughs> no, it's totally in there. <laughs> that sounds just doofy enough to be true. That's like a SVU scene. That's not a Star Trek Voyager <laughs> scene. I mean, maybe someone wrote it like really late at night, woke up the next morning and deleted it, but it somehow made it into a book about the production of Voyager. Oh Were they gosh. like trying to be super like, this is Janeway and she's she's intense and cool, but she's also, you know, like a fun, casual lady you could grab a hot dog with. She's totally relatable. <laughs> so this was really interesting when I was reading this background stuff is that they, I mean, it was interesting to me because this is not how I read the the first episode, mm. is that apparently the idea was that if we tell this whole thing from Janeway's perspective, it's going to be really predictable, and she doesn't really have an arc, and Paris is the one with the arc, so we should tell the whole thing from Paris's perspective. 
okay, that kind of sets it off as being like, well, as our pilot, this is the guy we're probably going to be following most closely. Yeah, but I guess they were like, you know, he's the one who starts out as like outside of both the crews. So he's more of like a lower level observer. So that could be interesting. But they also and they want him to end up a better person. So when they were scripting out like the 10 scenes per act, like per part, the first one is basically just like Paris. And then it says sex beat, which means like some kind of remark with sexual overtones to his supervisor at the penal colony. That seems like a really good way to end up in solitary, Tom. Yeah, and so instead they just replace that with him harassing study on the shuttle. But yeah, yes, so they they knew that from the beginning. But I also, I've never like watched this and been like, oh, the whole thing's from Paris's perspective. I do see him as kind of the character that they pin the carrying action of the story on, but... Yeah, I mean, he is in all the important parts. does seem weird, though, that, uh, to make that decision when they were, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were really hyping that Janeway as our first main woman captain was going to be a big freaking deal and all that. And it seems odd that they would make that choice and then make this choice. I mean, that's how I remember it. And I'm mm-hmm. sure, I mean, I can't say I'm sure, but I would guess that that conversation came from the perspective of, we need to to have something people are comfortable with. <laughs> so even when we're, you know, exploring brave new worlds and going with a female lead in theory, we're going to have a guy holding your hand through it. Don't worry, audience. Right. We're we're going to take the the guy who is the least woke in this crew is going to take the audience by the hand and make them a little more woke. Come with me and you'll be <laughs> In a world of really slow progress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but actually, I don't really see that in the notes. It seems more like he literally was the first character that they had written. Like, they knew the woman captain, but they hadn't sketched out, like, any characteristics. And because they had really liked this character from Nick Locarno from The First Duty, Mm -hmm. they were like, we know we want someone like this who just isn't quite kind of fitting in with Starfleet. And I think just because he was the most fully fleshed out, that would be like, why him and not someone else? And it seemed like they thought it would actually just be more interesting if it wasn't like step by step with the person who's the most like morally centered. Can you imagine if it had been Harry, though, that they had chose to be? Oh, God. Harry, this is literally his first assignment. He's none too bright, but he's a sweet kid. (laughs) He plays the clarinet and now he's out in space. That would have been an an interesting take on a similar theme. He wouldn't have been such a jerk also. Described in those terms, it also kind of aligns with Michael Burnham's story. Oh, you're Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Wait, does Michael Burnham play the clarinet too? Because that would be fun. (laughs) Not the Harry Kim part. Although I'm sure Tilly plays some kind of musical instrument. (laughs) She plays the baritone, but she can only practice after hours when Michael's trying to sleep. And that's why she has to go into stasis to get a good night's sleep. So the other thing they talk about a lot in the background notes is Michael Pillar says particularly, like, the thing that must be remembered in all discussions is that it, being Caretaker, was created in the shadow of Deep Space Nine. And there's this feeling that, like, Deep Space Nine is not a success from Paramount's perspective in terms of the ratings, that Emissary was too cerebral, and that therefore we need to make an action-adventure story where all the characters become clearly defined as quickly as possible and 
as individuals with their own traits, as well as sort of like in relation to the larger crew. So that that was a factor. Well, we do see in his first scene, Harry needing to be saved by Tom. In his Mm -hmm. first scene, we see the doctor being just really annoyed with everything happening around him. We see Paris being condescending to a woman who's got more experience than him. (laughs) Yeah. And we see Chakotay wearing a weird mock turtleneck. We see Tuvok being smug and sassy. You know, the best. Yeah. And these introductions aren't nearly as clunky as they are in, like, Encounter at Farpoint. Yeah. Yeah. They, They make a lot more sense. It's not just like, okay, it's my turn now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not a roll call. No. Oh, and we see Bellana having to make do with crappy old outdated technology. Mm. Yeah. And just being like, are you you freaking kidding me right now? I've got a 39-year-old engine. (laughs) You guys, this is my job and it's so hard. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty well-written episode in terms of that. We definitely do get a sense of sort of major character traits. Mm -hmm. Kes is very curious. Neelix is very unsettling. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kes is very curious, but also, like, especially in Caretaker, very determined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, she has goals and dreams and ambitions right from the start. And I feel like those kind of get lost along the way. They definitely do. They definitely Mm -hmm. give her to us as a character that is a free thinker and kind of wants to see and explore things for herself, but she does kind of end up playing a passive role more often than not when we see her in the rest of the series. Yeah, well, she gets, like, taken along by a lot of kind of exploitative people. Yeah. Because, like, she's curious but, like, naive, Mm -hmm. but, I mean, she does get a bit savvier later on, but a lot of the plots that which she plays a part are, like, things are happening to her. Yeah. Right. In terms of the Okampa, there was like a lot of debate on what they should name them and what they should, whether they should rescue two Okampa. Michael Pillar also pitched that instead of being like an alien race from the Delta Quadrant, sh- that Kess would be a Janai science officer, like the androgynous species from the Outcast, mm. which doesn't seem like it went anywhere. But yeah. apparently he thought that that could like lead to more interesting sexual conversations. <laughs> Interesting, yes. Good, not necessarily, considering how the outcast went. Yeah, not sure how they would have handled that, but interesting concept to see, like, a Janai who would be, like, androgynous but not villainized for it. That could have been really interesting. Also, if they're filling uh, Kessa's role, one that's adventurous and curious and wants to see more Mm -hmm. versus the ones we've seen that are kind of stuck in a very strict society. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. Pretty early on, we just we had a question on Facebook recently, so I wanted to raise it about how come in Star Trek do characters call female superior officers sir? And there's that scene early in Voyager where she says basically like I understand it's protocol to to call everyone sir, mm-hmm. but I don't like it. And then they were like, oh ma'am, oh well ma'am, and we'll do in a pinch, but I prefer captain. Mm-hmm. And this is not the first time we see that. We see that in Deep Space Nine and in TNG with Ro, or I think Shelby, mm-hmm. Crusher, some other folks, and uh, also Mr. Savick in the TOS movies. How do we yeah. feel about this? And why do we think it was there? I can't help but feel like it, for what, whether it was intended this way or not, kind of establishes that Janeway and uh, by proxy women in roles of authority aren't quite the norm still. 
even though we're getting that because I feel like it's kind of an othering action for her, kind of showing that either Harry has been very sheltered and doesn't know how to address a woman in an authority role or this just is something Mm. that doesn't come up very often. Well, I don't know. Harry is doing what protocol says he should do, right? Any superior officer is sir. Mm -hmm. And like that is not – a thing I really have an issue with. I mean, our English is gendered, not as gendered as some languages, but it is certainly gendered. And like you see a lot of people like giving up the the female version of different nouns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a, a lot of my friends who act do not want to be called actresses anymore. Everyone's yeah. an actor. Mm-hmm. Things like that. But a lot of that is personal preference. But I, it feels to me like in the future they just picked one but of course of course it happens to be the male one mm-hmm. right they could have come up with something else but whenever you come up with a new word for a science fiction show you have to explain it to your audience yeah i i think that was the intention yeah but i think the idea of having janeway say i don't like it was a reaction to the fear of making her seem too manly, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that was a fear in creating this character for for the creative team. They wanted to make sure that she was definitely a woman. And so they gave her this, like, I don't like being called sir moment. They gave her this phone call with her boyfriend, you know, mm-hmm. and they they it seemed to me like they were really pushing, like, yes, this is a woman in authority, but she's not just going to act like a man. She's still a woman. She's a safe woman in authority. Right. Yeah, well, they said that she didn't, like, that scene with Mark and the scene with Tuvok were added because they felt like you didn't actually get a sense of who she was as a person. Mm -hmm. It was like, she's competent. And that was kind of all that you could tell. So I don't think it, uh, yeah, but we've talked before about, like, this idea of, like, sort of treading a fine line with needing to make this character palatable for everyone. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, 25 years later, it's much less risky to have a woman character that has, quote unquote, unlikable traits. But, like, as a protagonist of a show in 1995, that was, like... You didn't want people to say, oh my gosh, I don't like her. Because as we have established, being an unlikable woman is the worst possible thing. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that is something that definitely, I mean, I think Janeway paved the way for some of the characters we have on TV now. uh, But if you were going to like do a show again now that you wouldn't have that extent, it's not that you don't still have like double standards and criticism and stuff, but. There isn't, there's many, many, many more examples of shows that are centered around women who are more complex and have, you know, certain traits or, you know, things that we don't necessarily consider like nurturing and feminine and it's still okay. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right, Sue, that like the intention was just to pick like, you know, pre-Voyager, the intention was to pick a neutral term and it was the masculine term, kind of like fireman and all of those professional words. Or just using he to mean they, or he slash she slash they. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah, it was like sort of an unintentional, like it was trying to be progressive and inclusive, but like actually not. And it wasn't like copying from military. But yeah, I think they actually thought that it would be like more open-minded when they had Mr. Savick. Like, look, we're being equal now because we're calling this right. <laughs> woman Mr. <laughs> but... Yeah, but I mean, I guess it kind of raises a like an elegant solution that 
why don't you just call everyone by their ranks? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Anyway. Okay, so we've talked a a little bit about... Janeway? Other other Janeway thoughts? I appreciate how when things actually start to go down, you see her hair become like half unfurled yes. from the giant updo. And I like that because no one makes a comment out of it. And it's not supposed to be like a gag. It's just a, oh, sh- shit. I'm getting tossed around. My hair came undone. But it still became a joke that they have that scene where she's fixing it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I forget what con it was, but I remember I was talking to Garrett Wang. And that scene came up and he was like, no, they had to add that. And we're like, wait, what are you talking uh, about? And he goes, they realized when they were, I mean, this is, you know, oh, his yeah. story. So take it with a grain of salt if you must. That they, when they were putting the episode together, they realized that in one scene her hair was a mess. And in the next scene it was fixed. So they had to add a scene of Janeway fixing her hair for continuity <laughs> because women's hair is mysterious and frightening because <laughs> you can't just assume <laughs> that she fixed her hair we can't just assume that she fixed it in a shuttle or a transporter or a turbo lift <laughs> on the way to the next scene i guess okay so quickly let's talk about the casting change since we're sort of talking about the origin of caretaker as well mm-hmm. so originally casting genevieve bujold and she left and one of the comments that she apparently made was like basically I can't do this. I have three people in here all working on my hair, and <laughs> um, this is like you know she she was hired without a screen test based on the strength of her reputation, and apparently like people like Robert Beltran had agreed partly because they knew who she was and they were really excited to work with her, but she quickly realized it wasn't really for her, and then uh, Kate Mulgrew was brought in. I think. I I guess, like, from a 25 years later perspective, I guess, I think it's an interesting footnote in the history of Star Trek, but I really, like, dislike how the videos make the rounds of, like, the Genevieve Bujold scenes and everyone's like, oh my god, this would have been so terrible. It just, like, strikes me as, like, kind of mean and unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's one of those things where we can definitely look at certain scenes outside of the intended context and without seeing how the dynamics would have been different with her as a full character and not just with individual scenes, because you want to think that the character is at least a little tailored to the actor playing them in some way, shape or form, especially when they know they're going to be like one of the primary characters of a show that they're hoping to have be continuous and have an arc. So we don't really know what they had entirely planned for Genevieve Bujold captain, but it probably would have been something different. Yeah, and I mean, she only filmed a few scenes, mm-hmm. and it just clearly wasn't right for her. And I, I mean, I think we can all ag- agree it probably all turned out for the best for everyone. Yeah, so I don't know. Just interesting, interesting thoughts. But I mean, I guess the only difference from like a representation perspective is I would say Genevieve Bujold definitely looks older than Kate Mulgrew. Yeah. She's got gray hair. Her skin is a little bit less youthful so that could have been just interesting from you know a perspective of like things we've talked about before of like just you don't get a lot of like middle-aged or older women on tv yeah that said not like janeway was really going around having a ton of romances so no but she is younger and she is prettier and it gives the impression i don't i don't think it's ever stated outright it might be but it certainly gives the impression, at least in Caretaker, that this is her first command. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah. that's the vibe I was picking up. So she's also 
you know, leading a crew for the first time, mm-hmm. right? Which if maybe they had an older actor in the role, that would not have been one of the elements. Or would have raised questions. Right. Mm. But I do enjoy in in her introduction in Caretaker that she is established as a science officer right from the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. It's like one of the first things she says about herself. Yeah. So one of the characters we haven't talked about a lot is Bolana. Bolana. I think it's interesting that like one of the first times we see her acting independently of the rest of her, her group and her crew, she's getting angry and she like says something along the lines of like, oh, sorry, it's the Klingon in me. And yeah, that just feels like such a weird statement to make. Like uh, if anyone considers their ethnicity to be a character trait or something that just uh, that just feels awkward to me you know yeah and Roxanne Dawson says that she didn't really have any idea what she was doing in that first episode and she was just kind of like casting about and hoping that she did something that would seem like when she watched the episode she would understand the character yeah but I think you know she does a pretty good job with it but just i mean it i think it goes back to that thing about having to establish all the characters right away whereas you know go back and look at spock Mm -hmm. we don't actually learn that he is half human half vulcan in the first episode yeah and we get like these little tidbits of his culture along the way of course we already know more about klingons by that point but you don't have to necessarily like spell it all out in that first episode Again, though, the ethnicity is a character trait thing is yeah. just very odd. Mm-hmm. And that, again, I'm glad that when we, we first see her, she is she's busy. She is getting things done in kind of terrible conditions. So we establish what she's all about with that right off the bat. And I think yeah. they give her a little bit more of a, like, Scotty slash O'Brien feel with that. Because yeah. she's working with old busted tech. Mm-hmm. And she's mm-hmm. making it happen. Mm-hmm. I also just always like her scenes with Kim. Yeah. I think they have an interesting evolving friendship through the course of the series. Mm -hmm. And you can start to see it here when, like, he is not someone who is exceptionally confident. And he get he's, like, very kind of gullible at first. But when Bolana is, like, going full-on, like, personal crisis mode. Yeah. He kind of, like, finds something in himself and is just, like okay, hey, this is ridiculous. And then they both managed to kind of move forward together. But can we talk for a second about they warned us about Ferengi at the Academy? Oh, God. They warned you about an entire race at the Academy? Warned you? That's yeah. super racist. Well, and, then, and then you're going to say it. <laughs> and then and then after we established that, if that didn't make you go, whoa, okay, then Tom goes out of his way to prove that he that they're absolutely right and that the stereotypes should be, you know, protected against at all costs. That's just kind of a, okay, what, what are you trying to tell us here? He also takes racist jabs at Chakotay twice. Oh, yeah. that, is, that is, to me, one of the things <sighs> that holds up the worst of this episode. Yeah. Because, yeah, he makes the comment about... Oh, man, what is it again? Don't your people have a thing where they can turn into a bird or something? Oh, yeah. And then there's like, now your life is mine. Isn't that the way it works? Yeah. But he uses much more racist language. (laughs) He does, if I save your butt, your life belongs to me. Isn't that some kind of Indian custom? Tom is such a douche in this episode. And then isn't there some Indian trick where you can turn us into a bird and fly us out of here? 
and it's like, uh, like he's obviously deflecting with humor, but it's like not funny. It's extremely racist and would not fly today. I don't think really would fly in 1995. See, what would have been great is if Chakotay had turned to him and be like, this, this is why we kicked you out of the Maquis, man. This is why we didn't want you here. The only redeeming part about that scene is that Chakotay's response is, you're too heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not that fat shaming is good, but just that, like, he's just throwing it right back at him. (laughs) Well, and because, like, so we know that Voyager had this issue where they hired this consultant on... Chicote to like help write indigenous content, but then it turned out this guy was a total fraud and wasn't actually indigenous and was just making stuff up. But in this episode, they're not actually talking about Chicote's character or like indigenous ancestry, but it's like they feel a need to point out just in case you didn't get what he is. Yeah. He's Native American. Uh-huh. Um, and they do that through racism. Not the best way to do it if anyone listening is taking notes. Not <laughs> the best way to do it. There are other, much better ways to do it. Do them, not this. Yeah, one thing on a semi-related note that I found in the notes for the production is that Michael Piller had written a memo about the inside of the array when they were trying to figure out, like, what what is going to be happening here. Like, they didn't know how they were going to encounter the caretaker. And before they had arrived at the idea of the farm... He talks about like, oh, well, we should have it be like they get beamed inside and they it's somewhere just like just like Earth. Like it could be like Brigadoon or the beach of Bora Bora. And the quote is like, but quickly the idyllic setting becomes dangerous. Not exactly sure how, but instead of probes, some optical zapping might occur. Then one laughing native girl pulls Kim into the bushes, as native girls are wont to do. Jesus Christ. But as he expects carnal delights, he winds up being grabbed by an optical beast and disappears. Good lord. (sighs) Expect carnal delights from native girls. Guys. Michael. It talks about, like, earlier in the memo that, like, you know, you'd have, like, Tahitian women coming up and putting lays on Paris and Kim, which would be really interesting for them and, like, hard to resist. And instead they go for, like, this semi-flirting farm girl. Instead they go for the dark secret of Harvest Home. They go for this just vaguely creepy, overly wholesome barn-raising party. How is that supposed to make them feel more comfortable? Like... The caretaker has a really, really poor grasp on what social situations people want to be just dropped into the middle of. Also, how undiverse is this crew that, like, everyone, and presumably they did the same thing for the Maquis. Everyone can relate to, like, this down-home I really would have loved to see the Maquis just reacting to this and just immediately Bologna going, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I hate this. I'm out of (laughs) here. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Nope, I'm going in that barn. I don't know what's in it, but I'm getting away from the people about square dance. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to be fair, the, like, Bora Bora thing didn't end up on the screen. But, you know, always youth- used to useful to remember that, again, like, Utopia in the 24th century written by very human humans in the 20th century. And that this like, issue with native stereotypes will become a bit of a persistent problem for at least the first couple years of Voyager. Mm -hmm. Also, guys, just get more creative when you're thinking of a paradise. (sighs) 
I mean, Brigadoon could have been fun. I mean, we were all into Dinagoo into the Hoose. That's so. fair. That's fair. We love yeah. Dinagoo into the Hoose. It's yeah. a classic. Yeah. But at the same time, get more creative. You guys are the writers. Do the right thing. <laughs> Although, wouldn't it have been great, though, if uh, Ruckus had started at that little barn party that had turned into like a dance fight competition a la Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Oh, my goodness. Like, no matter how yeah. violent they try and get, it's all just super wholesome. They, they wouldn't need phaser fire for that. <laughs> just aggressive kick lines. And that's my idea for the re- for the rewrite right there. Yeah. Although, can we can we please heap in the scary lady with the pitchfork? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that was terrifying when I was ten. If anything, let's have there be at least five more of her. Yeah, <laughs> I'm down with that army of people in pitchforks. And at first, they're like, "Oh, do you have a twin?" And she's like, "Yes, I'm a quintuplet." <laughs> <laughs> Me and my sisters, we hold a quilting bee together. Also the needles in the chest. Uh. And I like how it sets a tone for like, you will see Harry Kim undergo <laughs> some pretty unpleasant things in this series. Harry has been built to suffer. That is his purpose <laughs> in our series. He's like the only one that seems fully conscious of the fact the needle's going into his chest. Ugh. Yeah, that I mean, I found it super effective. When I was 10, yeah. and it was 1995, and I don't have a hard time watching it now. I'm like, oh, okay, it's good. This is the scary part. Kind of a Matrix-esque situation that he ends up in, and before The Matrix came out, mm-hmm. come to think of it. So we we talked a little bit about Cass, but we didn't really talk about Neelix's already slightly creepy protector relationship with Cass. Mm. Yeah, we don't really get a full establishment of what their relationship has been like up until this point, just that he ended up at this Kazon camp at some point and found out she was there. And the amount of unanswered questions just makes the whole situation a little more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Neelix in general is a lot like shadier in Caretaker <laughs> than he ever is again. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. he's this junk dealer. He knows all of these Kazon. And, he's like, a water addict. Stole water from them. He lies to Starfleet to rescue Kess. Like, I mean, that's really just setting the tone for him lying to everyone nonstop the rest of the series. But after this, he's just sort of this like comic relief buffoon most of the time. This lovable doofus mm-hmm. instead of this dude they literally found in a floating space dump. Right. Who was going to fight them over, over plastic bags. Yeah. I think they really, hmm, I don't know. I'm like... Uh, th- there's some potential earlier on and some of the better scenes like are I think Neelix and Tuvok mm-hmm. and I'm like if they had just like been able to recreate kind of like a quirk Odo dynamic mm-hmm. but I don't know um, and not tried to like make him you know a helpful counselor to people because that I don't know that that worked out. I'm just saying at the end of the episode when Neelix and Kess are saying they want to stay on board and Neelix's argument is, whatever you need, I will be, is just kind of like, Mm. oh, that's sketchy. That, yeah. What are your actual skill sets and not the things (laughs) you're going to try and half-ass and fake your way through, dude? Yeah. What are you actually (laughs) qualified for here? No, no, stop trying to upsell yourself and tell me what you actually know how to do. But there were plenty of other things that caretaker sort of set up that weren't ever really revisited and the Mm -hmm. one that like always bugs me the most is this water crisis 
Yeah, oh, like the Kazon yeah. are at war with each other. Over resources. Over a basic survival resource. Yeah. It's all and very Mad Max, and they don't come back to that aspect of it. There's an explanation as to why the the Okampa world, uh, why their planet doesn't have water, but like, why is that whole area of space without water? Because that's how they make it seem. Yeah. Yeah. They're in the Mad Max nebula. My God. <laughs> that is really interesting. I did, I never even thought of that. But they they talk so much about how the, the Kazan are split into to factions, into sects, mm-hmm. and are, are each control a different, like, basic resource. And so it's like Settlers of Catan. I guess. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it's not really ever like, well, how did it get that way? Well, let's let's talk about how, you know, this, you know, the Federation is coming from a post-scarcity society and Mm -hmm. like flung into one that is definitely not that. And how did they get that way? And what did humans do to prevent it? And like, there are so many, I know I'm looking at this like 25 years on at this point, but like, water crisis, important. (laughs) Yeah, that's an actual thing that happens around the world regularly. So when Jerry Taylor was sketching out stuff for this story, she sort of conceptualized the Kazon, which were not called the Kazon for a really long time. For a while, they were called the Gazon, or the maybe it was pronounced Gazon. Oh, wow. <laughs> but before that, they were just called in the, the like notes, the Bloods and the Crips. Guys, that's some very questionable taste there. Yeah. Yes. Again, probably like at the time there was less of a like dialogue about like the carceral state and like the origins of gang culture. Oh, well, this would stuff, have been but... in the nineties in California. Yeah. Like post Rodney. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> I'm 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 overwhelmed with the lack of cultural sensitivity here right now. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... Holy uh, smokes. <laughs> Guys. Yeah, I definitely had a had a cringy moment reading that. And then, so I guess they, they sort of saw this as like, they wander into the middle of the gang war and they have to pick sides and that's going to like come back to haunt them. I think it also kind of speaks to, because you're right, I think they had a really interesting opportunity to get into like resource scarcity yeah. as a dynamic instead of just these guys are dumb thugs which is kind of what it became yep. which feels reflective of how they were considering the whole gang war situation probably yeah so that also it like uh, yeah it kind of reflects on like i hope that they had but i somehow think maybe they didn't have more nuanced ideas about human gangs but i definitely agree with you in the sense that they could have gone into that more and Honestly, I, I feel like with Voyager itself, they never really dug into enough of the whole, we've got limited resources here until mm-hmm. we get to Year of Hell. Mm-hmm. And even with like the the gang culture piece, you know, we get like that later episode with Aaron Eisenberg, yeah. which I think is a great episode, but it makes it seem like the only reason, like the Klingons are just like this because it's a toxic masculine culture. Mm-hmm. Like there's no actual, like- You mean it, the on? All this- yeah, <laughs> all the uh, socioeconomic forces that, like, contribute to this are just kind of... They're just too dumb and angry to take care of themselves, is what we're saying. <sighs> Good lord. Yep. And what's with their hair? We don't understand it. Guys, stop. <laughs> I do really like Cass, though. Like, she, at first she seems 
a little bit almost like kind of like timid and gaslit. Like she's like, I'm too curious. I'm told it's my worst failing. And she's obviously like, we literally first see her as a victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they've beaten her. She has a black eye and a split lip. But she's she's the one like standing up to Neelix and being like, no, we have to stay. And she stands up to her elders and um, says like, we need to break free from our dependence on the caretaker. Um, and she also helps everyone escape, even racist Mr. Paris. <laughs> yeah, they really did set her up to be a lot more proactive than the cast we got throughout the series. That's a little sad. Well, I mean, maybe it's like a bit of a, I don't think consciously, but like, maybe it sort of makes sense that you also don't have to be that determined when you're in safety. Like, in the rest of the time, she is not having her basic needs met. Right, right. So, like, she kind of changes from, like, you know, scrappy to wide-eyed and eager, but maybe that's also partly because she's safe now. Mm-hmm. But I think a little bit it just gets refocused. Like, what, she reads all those mm-hmm. medical texts in, yeah. like, overnight or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have her go from being this kind of rebel character to this very sweet, nurturing, healing character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, again, kind of seems to fall into the this is what we have deemed safe roles for uh, the women on this show. Mm-hmm. We've got the we've got the nurturing sweet one. We've got the one who's in authority, but not too in authority, not like intimidating in authority. And then we've got the angry woman. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of telling from the get go there of what I'm not totally sure. I just felt like it was worth noting. Or, like, the ingenue, the mom, and the bitch. Exactly, yeah. That's that's a better way of putting it. Well, damn, I've just bummed us out, haven't I? (laughs) Damn. It was bound to happen. Yeah. Not you particularly, but... (laughs) I think Ronald D. Moore, one thing he didn't really love about this episode is... Well, so there was a big debate about should the Maquis end up part of a Starfleet crew at the end? Or should they be Maquis... That are somehow integrated into the, the system, but they're like wearing different clothes. There's more tension. Ron Moore definitely felt that like it was death to the show to make them all one crew. Um, and he also felt that there should have been more fallout from like half their original crew dying. Yeah. Although to be fair, they did only know them for like three days. <laughs> Still would be probably traumatizing because it could have been you. Yeah. There would have been some survivor guilt there probably. Yeah. Thoughts on the integrating the crew piece? I think uh, it does give us an interesting concept from the start. And even as a pilot, knowing that there's going to be this huge difference between, you know, one half of the crew and the other, that does make you wonder, oh, what's going to happen next? Which I think is kind of successful in terms of finishing out a pilot. It does get you wondering. Mm -hmm. It does make you want to see more. So um, Michael Piller had also wanted the Maquis to keep wearing their own outfits, but Berman pushed them to wear the Starfleet uniform, feeling that ongoing tension would get irritating. But it also, again, came back to that, like, this needs to be different than Deep Space Nine. And Michael Piller says the driving philosophy was to recapture the bright, optimistic, ship-driven energy of the next generation. And the most notable decision in this regard was to put the Maquis into Starfleet uniforms at the end of the pilot. Also, let's be real, their Maquis outfits were pretty terrible. <laughs> they all have that same yeah. weird shoulder pad structure going on. Yeah. I definitely remember in the lead up to Voyager, a lot of the press, like, pushing this idea of, like, these two crews are going to integrate, and there's going to be tension, 
and tension unlike we've seen on a Federation starship before. And like that really that lasted maybe two episodes. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't stick around. It came back every now and then mm-hmm. and like got used as like an oh yeah, he doesn't like me because he's Maquis mm-hmm. every now and then, but it didn't really stick around. Yeah. The first time I was actually watching Voyager, I was watching it in syndication and just reruns and a friend of mine showed up and was like, oh, yeah, they probably don't like each other because of the Maquis thing. And I was like, what's the Maquis? Because I was watching it just episodically mm-hmm. as it was on in the afternoon and mixed up in rerun Landia. And she's like, you, you said you like Voyager. You don't even know what the Maquis are. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what the Maquis are. And then I was like, I got fixed with the most intense, oh, you freaking idiot, that an 11-year-old can give another 11-year-old. But it's true. If you turn on a random Voyager episode, you're not going to know there's any tension among the crew. No. And I didn't. <laughs> I mean, certainly, I think it, I think that it could have been balanced better. Like, I think without losing the optimism and, you know, certainly I'm a fan of other shows like The Expanse that have a lot more tension among many, many different areas of the main characters. But like, I don't think Voyager should be the same show. No. But I think they could have done that by, like, having them have a bit more fallout from people's, from losing their comrades. Mm -hmm. They could have maybe had them just wear, like, some sort of generic different uniform or something that wasn't the awful rando mock turtlenecks (laughs) and shoulder pads. (laughs) So many vests! And then decide later on that, like, no, we have to do this, but maybe there could be more objection to it. Or it would have also been interesting to see the scene where Chakotay and Janeway decide that. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe they argue about it. Yeah. But another, okay, funny, random political side note. Apparently, the episode was criticized for seeming to sympathize with some of the politics of Newt Gingrich, who was advocating what? welfare reform in a document called The Contract with America. And he had argued for the idea of moving welfare children to orphanages. And so it says the scene most notable for seeming to align with this notion is the one where Janeway tells the caretaker the Okampa need to be left to fend for themselves. And <laughs> that's a stretch. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I feel like. Jerry Taylor says, I think we were certainly cognizant of the issue of taking responsibility for oneself. It was after the whole Newt Gingrich contract with America issue came along, and unfortunately, in my mind, they have been lumped together. I think we weren't talking about anything as drastic and draconian as he seems to be. Now, of course, many people assume that we are part of the new right, which is anything but the truth. Good gravy. But Star Trek's never been political. Never! Never! They only just made it so in the last couple years, and they're ruining it for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I had never read it that way, I guess. I mean, I can see how you could find that problematic, but it certainly is different than, like, the situation around, like, the Ocampa situation with the caretaker is not an analogous situation to people on welfare. Yeah, that's subtle difference there. Subtle, subtle difference. (sighs) Good freaking grief. Entertaining. That is the first and probably only time Newt Gingrich has ever been referenced in conjunction with Star Trek. Or on this podcast. I mean, thank God, right? We've never had to. Mm-hmm. What the hell? But by and large, critical reception for this episode was pretty darn good. And it was 
a, a very high it was the highest rated night for for UPN for all of Voyager up to and including the uh, debut of Enterprise in 2001. Seems like it went pretty well for them. Yeah. I think of all all the pilots it's one of like the least terrible least messy. Yeah. 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 It's one of the ones where there's the least what are you guys doing? Mhm. Yep, and certainly made an impact on me 25 mm-hmm. years ago. And we're still talking about it 25 years later. When is Picard premiering? The 10th? The 23rd. Mm. Okay, so it will not have come out when this episode runs. So I can say that this was the least <laughs> bumpy premiere because I haven't seen the Picard one yet. I don't know. I thought the premiere of Discovery was pretty good. Yeah, although I think it definitely, um, it's like a lot of things changed from the premiere on because of the changes in showrunners. Yeah, definitely. So like that it, it, it didn't necessarily like set the tone for the whole first season. There's also an argument to be made that the Discovery premiere was for a different show. <laughs> yeah. Because it was yeah. set several years before the main action of the first yeah. season. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it, but I understand I, I think it's, like, a little bit less of, a like, a coherent vision for the whole first season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I guess, overall, should we rate this episode? Absolutely. Any final thoughts and ratings before we, we head out? I give it three glasses of water that Neelix gargles and then spits into the bath. Of five. Three out of five. I will give this three and a half holographic old ladies with pitchforks <laughs> out of five. <laughs> One of them is their half sister. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Out of all the possible quintuplets, <laughs> creepy old ladies with pitchforks. They all talk in stereo too, so it's like a creepy echo. <laughs> you never hear them coming. You, you're sure hear them leave, though. I will give this seven out of ten shriveled paperweights that used to be caretakers. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. <laughs> He's beef jerky now. That's really gross, though, that she keeps the dead caretaker on her desk. Like, yeah. gross. That's yeah. a weird trophy, Janeway. <laughs> I mean, the Ferengi have been doing that for a while. Weird flex. Weird flex there. Awesome. Okay, well, happy birthday, Voyager. And thanks to all of our listeners for sticking with us through 2019 and looking forward to a year ahead of many exciting opportunities of being stuck with you in the podcast quadrant. (laughs) Sue, um, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And Grace? You can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. And you can also find me in the root cellar trying to figure out where these gosh darn space hillbillies keep their moonshine. (laughs) <laughs> and i'm jara and you can find me on twitter at j-a-r-r-a-h penguin or at trekkiefeminist.com and for contacting our show which is something we highly encourage you can visit our website womenatwarp.com or email crew at womenatwarp.com or you can find us on the media's social at womenatwarp and for more from the roddenberry podcast network visit podcasts.roddenberry.com thanks so much for listening Thank <music> you.